Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Worthy Podcast, brought to you by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber. In 2023, the Hall of Fame launched its first ever podcast series in the form of 12 in-depth audio interviews with some of the great names in the history of tennis. Season two is coming in 2024, featuring more fascinating chats that really get into subjects that aren't typically heard in most tennis interviews. So to whet your appetite for those, we've taken some of the most interesting contributions from our first 12 interviews and put them together organized in five different themes. Our final of the five themes today is advice. What advice the legends we've interviewed in season one of the podcast would give not just to youngsters who aspire to greatness, but equally importantly, to their parents. We have eight legends lined up to give us the benefit of their experience. Chris Bowers, who hosted all 12 interviews for the Tennis Worthy podcast, presents this review of the great names telling you and your tennis-mad youngsters what you should and should not do. Take it away, Chris. It was Andre Agassi who, in the early days of his relationship with Steffi Graf, said, you can always learn from a champion. But what can you learn? We've tended to end our podcast interviews with a question about what advice the legend would give, both to tennis-playing youngsters and to tennis parents. And there were a few themes that ran through the answers. Many champions gave us versions of giving everything you have so you can never have any regrets. Here's the Australian, Leighton Hewitt. Oh, first of all, you've got to enjoy it. You've got to enjoy the, the journey of being a tennis player. Otherwise, you'll never fulfil your potential. But I think always to to have no excuses, to go out there and lay it on the line, you know, give 100% all the time, I think you'll have no regrets when you look back at the end of your career. And uh, I think that's the biggest thing is every single time you step onto a tennis court, whether it's on the practice court or the match court, uh, to try and get the most out of yourself. And Leighton Hewitt certainly did that in his playing days. What a competitor he was. Here's a slightly broader take on that same theme, which is valid for more than just tennis. It comes from another Aussie, the wheelchair tennis legend, David Hall. I try to frame it this way. I, I say if you have something that you want to chase or that you have a passion for or if you're trying to get you move your way through adversity, you have to take responsibility for it. But... In saying that, at some point, to get to whatever is next, uh, an opportunity will come your way, and you have to recognise that. And the other part of it is that if you are chasing something, then you have to know what it is that you're chasing. Like you have to be, you have to frame it in a way that it can't be a fuzzy dream off in the distance. You have to know what it is that that you're passionate about and that you are chasing, and then. I think probably the most important thing about all of that is that you have to be committed to it because there's no point in chasing something if you're not fully in, if you're not fully committed. And I think I've heard players over the years say, oh, I want to do this in the sport or I want to do that in the sport or I want to reach this level or this ranking, but they're not committed to it. You know, it's just mainly mainly words and their actions don't don't back it up. And I think like once I realised that, that I have to take this to another level of commitment, that was truly when my career took off. And so I think that, that all those things are like a part of something bigger. 
David Hall on commitment. And it's interesting to know whether commitment equates to single-mindedness. Most players have an interest outside tennis, but it's very peripheral. Tennis takes up most of their attention. The highly eloquent Pam Shriver made a similar point, but she looks at it in the context that the careers of tennis players aren't that long, certainly compared to most professions in mainstream society. If you have the natural ability and you know you you can compete, then don't leave, kind of like the Martina approach, which is to don't leave any stone unturned. Novak's done it beautifully. Rafa has. Most of the great champions, they're great because, yes, they're tremendous tennis players, but they also... Iga Sviantec's doing it to this day. They're very meticulous with the details. And at the end of the day, they're going to look back and say, I did all I could. And even though most of us do everything pretty much, there's always, to me, there's always a couple of other rocks you could have turned over. So I think that would be one of my things, is just to make sure that you consider all the ways you think you can get better. And because you only have, even though the careers are longer now, they're still... <laughs> we don't have long careers. When you consider how, how long you can broadcast, how long you can negotiate, how long you can be a teacher or be in the medical profession, even though it's longer, you're still about done in your late 30s and 40. Pam Shriver on something many of us don't appreciate. Most careers start in your 20s and peak at, what, 50 or 60, whereas top-level athletes start in single digits and their playing days are done by the time they're 35 or 40. Another American legend, Stan Smith, also subscribes to the don't-have-any-regrets school of thought, but he expresses it in a different way, which warrants some thinking about. The one thing that I would want to pass on is that everybody's pretty much the same. They have a lot of the same ideals. Uh, they have different personalities, uh, different dreams. and um, But, you know... Uh, a lot of extraordinary, thing, extraordinary things have been done by very ordinary people. And I think God's given each of us a certain amount of talent in in different ways. And our only, in my opinion, our only obligation is to get the most out of that talent that you possibly can. And, uh, and not look back on your life with regrets of not giving it your best shot. That would be my main bit of advice to any young person. Stan Smith on ordinary people doing some extraordinary things. Another theme that came up regularly was the need to enjoy playing tennis. Yes, if a youngster is good, then from the age of around 13 or 14, there has to be a level of discipline that goes beyond the level associated with practising a hobby. But if the sense of what got a child into loving tennis gets lost, it won't help. Here's the eight times major winner, Ivan Lendl. I would say to youngsters, have fun, because when you're having fun, you do better. But I would also say to parents, make sure they have good instruction early. Uh, I have seen it working with juniors at USTA and uh, the academies and all that. If you have, and I have seen it again retrospectively when I look at some of my friends I played with in childhood. The ones who had flaws in their strokes and in their technique were held back for a long time trying to fix it later. So if you can get um, if you can get good instruction early and good fundamentals, the road is becoming a highway and you can keep improving. If you have to stop and fix it, you get past. 
the uncompromising Ivan Lendl, who coached Andy Murray to three Grand Slam titles and Olympic gold. And that advice to parents about getting good instruction early is also a theme that others have repeated. Get the grounding so that avoidable tennis flaws won't hold you back later. Let's get the view, both for children and parents, of Mary Pierce, a two-time major winner who was on the receiving end of some parenting that often overstepped the bounds of acceptability. What would she say to youngsters and their parents? I think it's important first to to know, like, you know, why are you playing tennis? What do you want? What are your goals? What are your dreams? And very important to have a dream. My dream was to win Roland Garros one day. And I'm grateful, amazingly grateful, that my dream came true in tennis. So the dreams are the fuel that fire you up those days when you're tired, when you don't want to do it, and you're wondering, why am I doing this? And then you think about my dream. That's why I'm doing this. To dream, to work hard, because everyone's like, what's the secret? What's the secret? (laughs) That's the secret. (laughs) Work hard. Always give 100% so that you don't ever, ever have any regrets. Always play honest, always play fair, and always give your best. As far as to the parents, you know, if the parent is in whatever level that they are involved, because I do believe that parents need to be involved in their child lives, if it's their school, if it's their sport, relationships, whatever it is, children need their parents. They need their love and they need their support. They need to feel like their parent is is present and cares. So if they're a coach or if they're not a coach, either way, what's so important is unconditional love so that however they perform on the court, if they play well or bad, if they win or if they lose, that they know that when they come off the, off the court that they don't have to fear you that they can come to you, they can talk to you, they can seek wise counsel from you, they can seek comfort from you, and guidance for their lives so that there's that relationship of, of trust, of love. And I always say, you know, treat your child the same. <laughs> you know, if they win or if they lose, treat them the same. Don't treat them any different because you're teaching them then that their value is not in their performance or what they can achieve, but it's in who they are as a person. And they deserve that love and respect no matter how they perform on a tennis court or not. Wise words from Mary Pierce. Love your children, whether they win or lose. We've heard from Pam Shriver talking about kids, but as the parent of three kids of her own and having her own court that's used for coaching, she makes a point that all parents should take to heart. I asked her about the balance a parent needs to strike between giving their child a fair chance of making it, but not squandering their child's chance of a happy childhood. It is a hard balance. It's a hard balance for the for the parents. Um, I have a tennis court at home, and I, there's a coach, Alexander Stevenson, who played the tour, and she coaches on my court and has a handful of kids that are pretty good. And some of the parents, they just think their kid's going to be like the world beater, and you can see their working harder almost than the kid. They're thinking about their child's tennis more than the child is. So anyway, the imbalance can happen from any number of people on your team. So it's more remembering to make sure your child is maturing and gaining agency and gaining the voice and able to speak up for their needs and their wants to be as good as they can be. Pam Shriver on the need for parents to respect their children. 
The Aussie singles and doubles Grand Slam champion John Newcomb has some interesting views on parenting, but, as you'll hear here, it's very much through his eyes as a Davis Cup captain having to manage the players. It follows the advice he gave his three children. My advice to my own kids was, uh, you know, you have to find out what you want to do and what what you want to do in life, but the one thing I demand of you is that you be a nice person. So you don't believe in the nice guys always come last adage? No, not at all. <laughs> I, I can disprove that in a number of occasions, including Rod Laver and, and Ken Rosewall and uh, you know a lot of the great Australian players. They were, they were nice guys, but they were, they were warriors out on the court. You know, there were a lot of sayings like that. There's no prize for seconds and all of that, but uh, it's really, you know, it's, it's when you come off off the battle, calling a tennis match, a five-set match, a battle. It's um, can you come off the court and look in the mirror and be proud of yourself, whether you've won or lost. Of course, you're more proud if you've won, but did you do your best? Did you do your absolute best? And there's no shame in saying, well, today the other guy was too good. I love it when I see players out there and they shake hands and they look one another in the eye. And too often today, it's uh, the loser just shakes hands and won't look at the other person and uh, gives a, a fish handshake. Well, in my day, if someone gave you a fish handshake, you wouldn't let their hand go. <laughs> and if you have a parent of a promising child, is there any advice you'd give to the parent? That's a very tricky question. <laughs> we had... Um, it becomes uh, trickier with the different cultures. Some cultures, uh, the the bond between a father and son is uh, very hard to get between. So you have to, you know, try to get to know the parent as well as you possibly can because that's that's a way to get trust of the player. You've just got to try to understand that. And, and sometimes uh, I think... People have a, a, a problem coming to grips with that, especially as, as tennis became more international and English-speaking associations found that they were dealing with a lot of parents that came from Eastern European countries or countries that will take Greece, for example, where there's a, a, a very strong bond between father and son. And you've got to learn how to deal with that. It's, it's not easy. I, I had it with Mark Philippoussis and, and Mark's dad, Nick. And uh, we had an on-off love relationship. But, you know, in, in the end, um, I had the respect of Mark, uh, of course, but also his dad. But, you know, the, it wasn't easy because sometimes I didn't understand where they were coming from. And, and they probably didn't understand where I was coming from, so you had to work through that. He's an underestimated thinker, is John Newcomb. He wrote one of the first books about the mental side of tennis, and he's always worth listening to. Let's leave the final word with the Indian legend Vijay Amritraj. His advice is aimed at parents who have more than one child, but not all are as good at tennis as each other. I think the first thing I would say to young parents is uh, when you have children, just remember that... Uh, you know, one could be worse than the other or one better than the other. And just think of what the one who's not as good thinks of and how he or she feels 
as they move forward in life and uh, that they don't have any chip on their shoulder or they don't have a health issue and just be able to spend a bit more time with them so that they can actually climb on your shoulders to get to where they need to. And uh, that, that would be the first thing to young parents. And to children, uh, you, you have to dream big. You have to shoot for the stars and you have to make sure that your feet are still firmly planted on the ground. But the important thing is make sure that you have greatest of gratitude and respect for the people who put you there and how they're going to help you get to where you want to get to so that as and when you do get there, that you will never forget it. And we know we all have issues with, uh, you know, internally with parents, with children, with grandparents, grandchildren, and so on. But you never ever get in the way to be able to have a regularly a, a morning and evening hug of everyone in your household. There is that affection and friendship and closeness that never ever goes away within a family. And that's why we're leaving the last words to Vijay. What a fantastic piece of advice. Make sure you hug everyone in your household morning and evening. It doesn't guarantee you'll become a champion, but it puts you and your child on the route to becoming the best tennis player you or they can be. Some great and useful and thoughtful pieces of advice there from some of the legends of our sport. Before we go, I have a little quiz for you. I'm going to play you a handful of sound bites some other legends gave us. See if you can guess who they are. There were different environments. Mr. Hopman's environment was much more sort of old school. It was regimented. It was quiet. It was, you know, very refined from that standpoint. Nick's was much more of a renegade outfit. No one's wearing a shirt. There's a lot of screaming and yelling and, and you know, racket tossing in a very different environment. And it was a little bit more of the Wild West, but it, there was so much appetite for success and so much desire on display. And at the same time, Nick was extremely progressive with having you know, strength and conditioning coaches, having a sports psychologist on board. There was just a lot of progressive thinking going on there because Nick didn't believe in the box. He wanted to jump over the box and create his own playground for us to play in. I'm not sure. I think because I got so fed up with this and exasperated because, you know, Billie Jean is a very good grass court player. And... Um, being left-handed, she was more difficult for me than uh, than a lot of people. She just used to direct the ball on my backhand and then bounce up to the net in true Billie Jean fashion. And with my slice backhand, I found it very hard to manoeuvre past her. I could lob and I could chip. And she always blames me, actually, incidentally, for her bad knees. She said, you used to play the ball so low. She said, I had to get down so much on both sides of my volleys. She said, it wrecked both my knees. <laughs> But on the other hand, she was difficult for me to play. And I think in the, in the final, I just got fed up. And uh, I sort of, instead of pushing the ball around, I whacked one or two. And uh, uh, they actually went in. At that age, I was too young to hold the racket one hand. And then my, my father, probably not when I was three, but when I was a little bit older, he said, well, you better not think of playing two hands uh, because it's not, not a real popular shot, the two-handed shot in those days. So you better be right-handed player or left-handed player. And, but you were left-handed, weren't you? Well, left, left arm throwing motion and two-handed sports, I play left-hand, so uh, I'm a bit ambidextrous. Uh, my father was left-handed two-handed sports too, but he played tennis right-hand and kicked the football right foot, and as I did. But, uh, if you were to throw something at me, I'd probably stick my left arm and left hand out in front to, to try to catch it. 
you know, Australia had a lot of leading players. Quite a few were ambidextrous. The person that I idolised was John Bromwich, and he was a right-handed server, left-hand forehand, two-hand, two-hand backhand, and Jeff Brown was the same thing. So we, we kind of led the way with ambidextrous-type players. I think that was the first time someone gave me a compliment. So in the years before, I was only confused by me having a disability. I was um, faced with all the facts that a lot of things were more difficult or I was slower than the rest of my friends. Or So this was the first time somebody gave me a compliment in how good I was at something and that I could improve. And I think that was the starting point for me to start believing in myself that I really could, you know, become better and uh, not even world number one I wasn't dreaming about Paralympic Games yet but just a compliment that I you know could improve in something and that that's a, that was a start for me so did you work them out I can reveal that all of them will feature in season two of the Tennis Worthy podcast a little teaser there it launches on January 11th Make sure you join us for those new episodes either by going to tennisfame.com slash podcast or by looking up Tennis Worthy Podcast on your regular podcast platform. And remember, you can hear the full interviews from Season 1 by going to TennisFame.com slash podcast. Until then, I'm Brett Haber. Thanks so much for listening to the Tennis Worthy Podcast.